Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and, I, and we do not know where they have laid him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Mike. This is the uh, point in the sermon on Easter Sunday when I start with words of appreciation, words of thanksgiving. It starts last week, Holy Week does, with Palm Sunday. And I know a whole lot of you, a bunch of you, were involved with all of that. Tamara, before you go far, uh, I don't expect you to lay on the ground here or anything. I really don't. (laughs) But there seems to be an issue here. (laughs) Talk amongst yourselves right quick. You sure? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'd like to say thank you to Tamara, first, first of all. So last Sunday, if you were involved with the Palm Sunday uh, processional, would you just stand? Don't you, I just want you to get a visual. If you were involved at all, if you helped walk kids down, if you were involved at all, please stand. Okay, if you helped. Okay, I know there was more than that. All right, thank you. Yep, yep. Thank you. And then we had uh, the Monday, Thursday service. And thank you to Pastor Jason Smith, who is out. Oh, hey, look at him up there. (laughs) Thank you to Pastor Jason and all the people who helped. I mean, Jason works hard on that service and everything. He actually not only is the preacher, but he goes to great care to make sure that everything is set up back there. So thank you to all of you who were involved in that. And then Friday. Gracious. Friday, the Tenebrae service is one of the uh, most meaningful moments of the entire year. And though uh, this year, for some reason to me, it seemed especially dark and quiet at the end, I sure am grateful for all the people who were a part of that service. Then yesterday, a whole bunch of you were here. I don't know if you noticed, but the windows are sparklingly clean. (laughs) The windows are great, and lots of work happened in here. The brass on the doors was even shined. Uh, If you were here yesterday to help us, wherever you were in the building, would you please stand up and let us say thank you to you? All of you who were there are part of that, yes. Great. Thank you very much. We've already had a great day today. Um, The Word and Table service was great this morning, our sunrise service. Dr. Randall Spindle was our speaker, and there are a lot of professors involved in the congregation in that service uh, that really, it just really made the whole service so meaningful to me. So many people that I probably still owe homework to, and I was so glad to see 
all of them. It was great. And thanks to all of you who brought something. There is still a lot of food out there. Thank you for the way that you pitch in and make this church a church. You'll have opportunity to do that at the very end of the service, as is our tradition, uh, in a musical sort of way. Somebody else I need to mention, uh, Britt Bowlerjack has really revolutionized the, the hosting and the greeting, the, the hospitality ministry, and uh, we have really benefited from her work, and also she's our, our college pastor, and we are counting down the days in a terrible sort of way because we're going to miss her terribly when she moves on and takes her missionary assignment to Northern California, but we're going to miss her. I do want to announce that we have found uh, someone who will be our college pastor, and he is here today, and I want to introduce him to you. Uh, his name is, his name is Rudy Rocket. That's him right there. That's Rudy. And I have lost track of where you are, so there he is right there. Let's just welcome him again, Rudy Rocket. <laughs> He's going to be great. Here's how we knew he was going to be great. We went and found him sitting on the curb outside the religion building. We just knew <laughs> he was going to be great. So we're looking forward to that. There are some people who come to church on Easter and Christmas. And then there are people who come to church every Sunday, but may be no more convinced than the people who come on Easter and Christmas of the reality of what it is I'm going to talk to you about today. And I, I want to say right up front, I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And I think it makes all the difference. But there are a couple of books that have helped me in my seasons of cynicism. And really, it's not connected to the sermon, but I felt like I needed to offer them to you. And if they can be of some help to you, great. But these two books are super important, and they will. You'll see them. You're going to love it. The Desire of Everlasting Hills and Surprised by Hope. Thomas Cahill wrote The Desire of Everlasting Hills. Uh, a PhD, a trained historian, and also an ardent skeptic. He was studying history, and in some ways was studying history so as to disprove the Christian myth, and he became a Christian. And this particular book, The Desire of Everlasting Hills, is the study that he did on the resurrection and why he concludes that something seismic happened that changed that part of the world. And as Dr. Spindle said this morning, it is reasonable to assume that it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean? What do we do with this resurrection? If it's, if it's not just uh, about the cross, if it somehow also has to do with the resurrection, then what does it all mean? And this book has helped me as much as any, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And I hope that if you need some help sorting through the issues relative to the resurrection, because I, I kind of want to go on record and say it again, I believe this happened. Then maybe these books will be of some help to you. Now, it's a familiar story. It feels like I, I am handed the same scriptures every year, and that's because I am. And I feel like I always choose the same scripture every year, and largely that's because I do. I cannot get away from John chapter 20 and the story of Mary Magdalene. I just can't get away from it. It is one of the most profound, giant, seismic, and yet intimate stories that I find in Scripture. Mary Magdalene has been portrayed in, in various ways uh, in art, 
This is Mary Magdalene in the top left-hand corner in The Chosen. Some of you are, are watching that, and you recommend it to me on a regular basis, and I've really enjoyed it. This is Mary Magdalene in The Passion of the Christ, and in The Passion of the Christ, they assume that she is also the woman who is caught in the act of adultery. That part is not actually in Scripture, but lots of people think that it might be so. This is Mary the original uh, Jesus Christ superstar movie, and in that movie, if you remember, there is the insinuation that there must have been some sort of relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. I, I think that at the very least, they were desperate friends, dear friends. I did find this this year, too. I saw more and more people say, in the story, in, the, in Da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper, maybe that person to Jesus' right, but to our left as we look at it, maybe that's Mary. And, and you know what? Maybe it, it might be. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how much it matters. The, the stuff that we have to guess about, I don't, I don't know how much it matters. The stuff that we're told in Scripture matters immensely. <laughs> And I'm willing to do some con conjecturing, as I will do here in a second, but it will be conjecturing done based on what Scripture tells us about Mary. Not just the book of John, but the other Gospels say something like this about Mary. In the books of Mark and Luke, we're told that Jesus delivered her from seven evil spirits. But John, what does that mean? I don't know. How did they diagnose demon possession? Don't know. What, what might that have looked like to be gripped by seven different spirits? I don't know. I don't know. Now, I don't think that these evil spirits had horns or wings or beaks or biceps. I am not a fan at all. There's a guy who wrote a couple of books a long time ago by the name of Frank Peretti, and if you like them, I'm really sorry. Please get rid of them. Because I think that, that cartoonish caricature of evil keeps this gospel story from helping you. I, I don't think it, it helps those of us who have real problems, and most of the human beings I know have very real problems. Very real problems. I suspect that Mary did too. And maybe what we read here in the scripture is the, the reality that the people around Mary who could stomach being around Mary sensed that somehow she was gripped by something and had taken a, a very dangerous, even in a deathly turn. Her life had a deathly trajectory. She was a captive, a hostage to her issues. <laughs> And you and I might have different ways to define or describe her demons. So given this that Scripture tells us, that given this testimony from Scripture in a couple of different places, now I want to start making some educated guesses. Now I'm going to say educated because I, don't, I do think that there's some evidence for what I'm going to say. Because here's what I want to do. I want to name these seven spirits. Now, I don't know for sure. These are the names. But knowing people as I have come to know people, knowing myself as I have come to know myself, is it possible that in the language of these seven evil spirits, really what we're talking about is somebody whose life had been gripped by one of these seven realities, any of which might take us in a deathly direction? 
Like, might it have been depression? It could have been depression, right? Would they have known to call it depression, or might they have, might they have called it something else like possession? I mean, I have seen a person who is so depressed, and here's why, and this is somebody I met in the middle of the night when I was helping to count the people who are without housing here in Oklahoma City, and we asked the question, why are you here? And here's what she said, because I lost my dad, who was my anchor, and now I've been drifting ever since. Maybe she lost somebody. And maybe, like the person I talked to, she had been drifting. And maybe she suffered then from fear and anxiety. Somebody else I spoke to didn't want to speak to me because she had been brutalized so often by men that a woman had to be the one who asked her the questions. Maybe it was fear and anxiety. I don't know about you, but I've seen somebody so consumed by hatred (laughs) that they were literally being consumed by their hatred. Sometimes it was self-hatred, but... It may be just as dangerous, if not more so, when it's hatred for someone else or another people group. Maybe she suffered from the evil spirit of shame, which I want to differentiate from guilt. Shame is much more dangerous. Guilt says, I have done a bad thing, but shame says, I'm bad. Maybe shame gripped her. And maybe the only thing that she could do, having been gripped by all the above, was drink something. Maybe one of her demons could have been labeled addiction. And maybe, as often is the case, that addiction lent itself then to objectification, wherein Mary might have herself been objectified on a regular basis, and in the same Uh, movement would have objectified somebody else, but that too becomes a spirit that grips you in ways that you will find hard to finally, to find freedom. Or or, or maybe the last one here I would call, and this is not an exhaustive list, I'm just, just guessing, but maybe cynicism. Have you ever seen somebody gripped by the evil spirit of cynicism? (laughs) Have you ever seen somebody willingly gripped by the evil spirit of cynicism? A person who has so lost hope that it seems to be the path of least resistance to never entertain it ever again. Did I cover everybody? (laughs) The truth of the matter is, each of us has suffered at least one of these things at some point in our lives. And Mary perhaps suffered all seven, perhaps at the same time. Here's what we know then about Mary. She was as good as dead. If all seven of those spirits or spirits like those spirits had gripped Mary, then she was as good as dead. But then Jesus. I'm going to say that several times today. But then Jesus. Now, we don't necessarily know how it happened, but we do know, we're told that something happened. This encounter where she was relieved of all these spirits, was it one giant miraculous encounter? Maybe we see that in Scripture, right? God in Christ seems to have the capacity to do anything in a moment. The man was born blind, right? The person with the shriveled hand. Lazarus was dead, and then he wasn't. 
Jesus seems to have had the capacity to do something like that. And then for other reasons that are unknown to me, Jesus seems to have allowed the process to kind of take its time. Because I would submit to you people, Simon Peter was in process, amen? Was not fixed, was not finished. Perhaps, perhaps Mary enjoyed some immediate relief, but then the long-term process that resulted in her full liberation. Yes, Jesus believed that healing could happen in a moment, but he also believed that it could happen in the context of a loving relationship that would loosen the grip of the diseases or the demons, restore a sense of worth and dignity and build personhood, and perhaps slowly recover for Mary a future once surrendered to the deadly, deathly spirits. Jesus seems to be able to see something in Mary. And here's the thing. There came a moment when Mary could tell that Jesus could see something in Mary and she could hear it in the way that he called her by name. This is very important. Jesus, God, knew her by name. Thomas Cahill, I referenced him earlier. Thomas Cahill wrote another book called The Gifts of the Jews, and in it, he says, we have some stories in the Old Testament that lots of different faith traditions tell. Lots of different ones. Take that one about the guy who had an ark and had all of these different animals. Lots of different faith traditions tell that story, but ours is told very specifically and distinctly, but, and it's this one line, but God remembered Noah. Think for a second. What if it's true that God knows your name? you ever gotten an invitation in the mail, beautiful invitation to a giant party, and it's addressed to resident. <laughs> if you get an invitation that is addressed to resident, you haven't been invited, you've been marketed. Gospel invitations are never sent to resident. Good news invitations to be redeemed and rescued, those invitations never come addressed to resident. It comes with your name on it. it. comes with that person that you dislike the most, it comes with his name on it, her name on it. The person that you are here aching for, that you are sitting there thinking, really wish he or she was sitting here with me, but they seem to be the ones without an anchor and completely adrift. The invitation comes with his name on it, with her name on it. Jesus called her by name, perhaps a thousand times. And in the process of calling her by name a thousand times, a bond developed. And we know that part is absolutely gospel true. A bond developed because all the men had deserted him. And scripture says that it was the women who were always nearby, but Mary was the one who was there until the bitter, bitter end and beyond. How could she not be? This Jesus had become an anchor for her life. Perhaps one of her best friends. 
It's obvious that Mary loved him. How could she not stay? How could she not come back to try to minister to him? I got to tell you, if you know anything about the context in which Mary was living at the time, when Mary goes back to the tomb early on that morning, when it was still dark, she did so at great risk to herself because she loved him. She loved this Jesus who's now gone. It killed by some of the same forces that had formerly held her hostage. The lust for power, uh, violence, and fear. If Jesus is gone, is her hope gone as well? She had to wonder, she had to wonder if Jesus had been telling the truth or if those old voices were actually telling her the truth. Those spirits had shaped her toward death. She was as good as dead. These were the lies that had become the truth for Mary, but then Jesus. But was she wrong about Jesus? And then was he wrong about her? Was the friendship with Jesus just temporary relief from the inevitable? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still very dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples. Something else I read that's very interesting this week. We have, all, we have always assumed that the disciple that Jesus loved was the Apostle John. And maybe it was, maybe it was. But somebody, now two somebody's were saying, but maybe because we have this in, in John chapter 11 in the raising of Lazarus, we have this language that says that Jesus loved Lazarus. Could this have been Lazarus? Maybe. It's interesting. Simon Peter and Lazarus, or Simon Peter and the apostle Jesus loved, who might have been John, they go running to the tomb. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and he bent down to look, and he saw everything lying there, but he didn't go in. Peter, being Simon Peter, busts through everything and goes on in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, maybe John, but maybe Lazarus, who reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. As yet, they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood outside weeping. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, woman, why are you weeping? Singularly focused Mary said, <laughs> they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. You know what she didn't say? Jesus has been raised from the dead. You know why? I don't think she believed it. I mean, she's grieving, right? Uh, grieving so much that it seems to affect her capacity to see. You see that? I mean, it was dark. It was very dark. And perhaps now she's blinded by the, the radiance and the brilliance of these people dressed in white. And she's been crying. She can't. See, 
When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, (laughs) why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, uh, forgive me, I cannot help, I have to say this to evacuate this thought out of my brain, right? Where did Jesus go for clothes? Maybe he went and found the gardener's clothes. I don't know. Found a gardener's uniform, right? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir. Sorry for that detour. We can edit that out. (laughs) Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She still doesn't believe. She still doesn't believe, though now she has seen him. She has seen an empty tomb. She has seen these figures in dazzling white. She still doesn't believe. What is it going to take for her to believe? There's an answer. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabunai, which means teacher. One of the guys I read this week said this, what an empty tomb, two angels, folded linens, and a separated wrapped up hanky could not do, the call of one's name does. This is a beautiful moment. Oh, in other words, blinded as she was by the darkness, blinded as she perhaps was by the brilliance, blinded as she was by her own tears and grief, She had so learned the sound of her name in Christ's mouth that that's all it took. Once he said her name in that oh-so-familiar way, she got it. And in a moment says, I know you. (laughs) You're alive. Have you ever heard God call your name? Now again, if you've been here for any length of time, you know I'm, I'm not the most uh, spiritual person in the world. I've heard God call my name. Here's what I mean. I remember when the invitation to grace came to me, but it didn't come to a uh, resident. I remember when I had this deep sensation that God knew my name, and beyond that, knew all the other stuff that you just soon God not know. I remember the day that it hit me that God knew all of that and still chose me. I remember the day because I remember it was joy and adulation mixed with just a twinge of embarrassment, again, that God knew all that there was to know about John and still, with open arms, welcomed me. I heard my name. And she reacted as you would expect that she would. She grabbed him. And I'm sure that there was some, some laughter here in this reunion. I'm sure that there was some joy in this reunion. And yet Jesus says something here that should be of great importance to, to us. In fact, I would say that this verse has even more to say to us than the last verse. And Jesus said to her, now, you can't hang on to me here. It's, I can't just stay right here because I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now, 
In the book of John, in fact, I would say in the Gospels, in fact, I would say in Scripture, we cannot afford to divide the cross from the resurrection from the ascension. All of it belongs together, chapters in the same story. It's not as if all the work was done once God finally killed Jesus. It's not what we believe. In fact, we would say, no, 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 it's not the cross that somehow makes the resurrection. It's the resurrection that makes the cross that all God's people said. Pretty good, not bad. But then the Bible would say the ascension, though, makes it all. Because it is in that moment when Jesus, who by that point was already understood as the access point between heaven and earth, it used to be the temple. There was a spot in the temple, a back room, where God was going to have access to earth and the people, and the people have access to God. But then Jesus said, we don't need that anymore. Jesus said, I'm that temple. I am that point of access. God will have access to you through me. And in being ascended, Jesus makes permanent this access that we would have to God and God would have to us. And it's better than you think. Don't hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and now somebody you can call your Father, my God and your God. In other words, in the death, resurrection, in the ascension of Jesus, Jesus locks into place our opportunity and capacity to be brothers and sisters of Jesus and the children of God, exactly like it says in John 1. He gave all of those who would believe the capacity to be the very children of God. Now, Mary, I'm about to call you to ministry, verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them, that he had said these things to her. Now just, now listen here. Mary, a woman who in that moment did not have enough standing in society to be a witness in a court of law. That woman, Jesus charged with the responsibility to start the movement that you and I enjoy today. She announced it first. And here's what she said to a room full of skeptical people. We know that one was entitled, was named Doubting Thomas. She said to them, hey, you guys, you remember this Jesus that we saw so brutally murdered on the cross? He's up and around. And he told me to come tell you that it worked. And, ready for this? He called me by name. called me by name. This is one of the icons used to illustrate Mary. And in most of the ones that you will see of Mary, Mary is holding an egg, an egg, a sign of fertility, life, and resurrection. Sometimes, in fact, most of the time, you'll see Mary holding a red egg. <laughs> and here's why. According to ancient tradition, Mary Magdalene gained an audience with the Emperor Tiberius in Rome after the resurrection. She went to tattle on Pilate. She denounced Pilate for the way he conducted himself at Christ's trial. Mary then told the Emperor about Christ and his resurrection from the dead, held out the egg. She said, Christ is risen. 
And the emperor said, no, he wasn't. The emperor is reported to have said, there is about as much chance of a human being being returned to life from the dead as there is of that egg in your hand turning red. Egg turned red. Now some of you are going, come on. Some of you are saying, come on, an egg turned red, are happy to high-five me when it comes to the resurrection of the dead, <laughs> but an egg turning red, that's a bridge too far. <laughs> okay. The Christian tradition tells us that this woman, at one point gripped by seven spirits, so tightly that they changed the trajectory of her life that required the God of the universe to come and call her name who knows how many thousands of times so that he could finally release her from all these things. This same God who came back after the resurrection to finish the deal of her reclamation by calling her by name, history tells us that she became something, something because God knew her name. And the God who knew her name is bigger and stronger and more powerful than all of the spirits which gripped her. Bigger and stronger and more powerful than any of the spirits that grip you or me. We say this around here. God's mind about you is made up and the news is good. We're gonna tune it just a little bit today, you ready? and it requires your participation, don't be loud about this. This needs to be intimate. But I would like for you to say this. God's mind about me, then insert your name. It's made up. And the news is good. I'll, let me show you how it's gonna go. God's mind about John is made up and the news is good. Do you know what happens when you finally start to drink deeply of that kind of truth? You start to believe it. And just like Mary is different, just like Mary is different because God knows her name and she now survives on resurrection energy, so too you and I, if we drink just deeply enough, this resurrection energy can live differently. John, you don't know my boss. Yeah, I, I know this Jesus character, though. Things are rough at work. Things are hard at home. I don't know if we're going to make it. Totally understand. Very important in this moment that you participate with me in the rehearsal of grace. I'm going to say it again and give you a moment to say it yourself as quietly as you'd like. God's mind about me, John, is made up, and the news is good. Your turn. And now what do you say? Why don't we unleash some of this resurrection energy into the world? May God bring to mind the name of a person that you would consider to be lost in a dangerous, deathly sort of way that you worry about every single day, maybe every hour of every day, maybe more often than that. 
the, the one, the one that you have thought about giving up on. Do you know who I'm talking about? Maybe for you, it would be your most bitter enemy. Need everybody to have a name. Having received this resurrection life and potential, I want you to be ready to also share it and make it available. So who is the person about whom you are most worried now? Who is it that you hate the most? Choose one. And now, as if you are speaking to that person, I want you to do this. God's mind about you, fill in the blank, is made up, and the news is good. Ready? Do it. Oh, man. As we've said, if you can believe that about yourself, your life can change. <laughs> but what if you can believe that about the one so desperately lost, without an anchor? What if you could believe it for the one that you despise? <laughs> what if it's true that God's mind about your loved one who's lost is made up and the news is good? What if it's true that God's mind about the one that you hate or struggle to really like? That's the way we say it in Christian circles. I struggle to like. <laughs> what if it's true that God's mind about your enemy and opposite is made up? What if you believe that? That one's harder, John. I'm going to need some strength to pull that one off. Yeah, me too. That's why we gather around this table every week. So if you are helping us today to set this table, please come now. Yeah, it's a tall order. And yes, it requires strength. It, it will require you to access resurrection, life, and strength, and energy without which I'm not sure that any of us, your pastor included, has the stuff to believe about my enemy, about my opposite, about the one so desperately and hopelessly lost. I don't know that I have the energy to finally live out that God's mind about him, about her is made up and the news is good. I, I, have, I have to have this each and every week to have the strength, the stamina, the energy to be a citizen of this resurrection community. And by the way, you're invited. And when I say you're invited, I do not mean resident. I mean first, middle, last name. You're invited. So Heavenly Father, with these elements, broken body and shed blood, would you strengthen us to believe? Would you strengthen us with the capacity to believe
that your mind about us is made up and the news is good? Would you strengthen us with the capacity to believe that you do, in fact, know our names? With these elements, God, blessed elements, would you help give us the capacity and the strength to believe about the other who is lost, the other that we despise? Would you give us the strength and the stamina to live out and embody and communicate that your mind about him, about her, about them is made up and the news is still good? So says the God who raised Jesus from the dead. We do this every week around here. It's called in communion by intinction. And, and let me kind of tell you how it's going to go. In a moment, I'm going to ask all who would, no one, no one should feel compelled, but all are invited, first, middle, last name. You don't have to do this if you don't want to. But if you recognize your need for grace as I do, you are always and each week going to be welcome around these tables. And if you're going to participate, I'll ask you to stand up and exit your pew to your left and to come forward. And as you come forward, you'll approach somebody holding a plate of bread. Please come forward like this with open hands. Because what you're about to receive, you can't get in any other way other than it be get, being given to you as a gift. It is grace. You can't buy it. You can't steal it. Let us give it to you as an embodiment of the grace of God. As someone presses a piece of bread into your open hands, that person will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and then take and eat, and then find a place to go and pray. And now it might be at one of these side padded altars. If you go to a side padded altar, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for healing, physical, mental, emotional, relational, whatever ails you, we will pray for you and anoint you with oil right there at those side padded altars. It, it may be that you'll want to come to one of these mourner's benches up here. We won't assume anything, but at some point, someone, probably me, will come by and touch you on the back, the neck, the head, just to let you know that you're not alone. You're not alone. Or you can circle right back around and pray at your pew, but do pray, and hopefully this is what you'll pray. God, do you know my name? Can it be true that you know my name? Can it also be true that you know the name of the person I struggle with the most, the person I consider to be most lost? Help me to believe. You may want to make a special trip by this bowl of water. Now very still. But maybe a few of you will want to dip your fingers into this water and to be reminded in that moment, and be reminded in that moment of the moment when you were included in the people of God by virtue of your baptism. If you need to be reminded that you belong, this bowl of water is a great time and place to do it. If you prefer something more prepackaged, if you're concerned about the, uh, the, the, the disease, that's perfectly fine. We have some prepackaged elements back there at the back, and those work just the same. Those work just the same.
It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, that includes today, remember me. In the same way, he took the cup and he held it before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. And remember that God knows your name. And that God's mind about you, named person, is made up. And the news is good. All across the sanctuary now, if you would, stand to your feet. Exit your pews to the left and come forward to receive these gifts of God meant to nourish and strengthen the people of God.